Will you turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, and we want you to be able to follow along as we go through today's message, and so these brothers have some Bibles. If you need one, get their attention as they make their way to the back, and that Bible is marked for you at Philippians 1, so you don't need to fumble around to find it, and you can keep that Bible. It's our gift to you. We want everybody to own a copy of God's Word. Philippians 1. As a young person growing up in church and also attending a Christian high school, one of the most common themes I heard taught and had to grapple with was what we called knowing God's will for your life. Teens and young adults were taught that they had to, quote, find God's will so that they would be in the very center of what he wants for them. This meant finding God's will in each of your decisions but especially the big decisions, like college and choice of career, marriage. Those were the big three for us, making sure that you were in the center of God's will for the choice of a career or a college, and certainly who we would marry. Now that sounds right, that sounds good, because it's something every Christian young person would, of course, want, to be in the center of God's will. But the problem was, we had no good way to figure it out. We were told to pray about it, and we'd arrive at peace in our hearts about one of the choices over another. I call this feeling-based decision-making. Or we were told that God will open and shut doors, and that would be a way to decide if something is God's will, if he obviously opened a door for that relationship or that job. Well, then it must be a God thing. God is clearly in it, so we should feel free to go for it. I call this opportunity-based decision-making. Another approach is one that we were not directly taught, but it was more caught from other things that were said about this topic of decision-making. It results from the uncertainties that were inherent inherent in the other two approaches, the feeling-based and the opportunity-based. The truth is, you couldn't know whether that good feeling that you had about your decision was from God or not. And sometimes you didn't have a good, confident feeling about any of the options anyway. And the truth is, divining whether an opportunity was truly an open door from God had the same kind of uncertainty associated with it. So we kind of caught this idea. Make your decisions as best you can praying about it, pursuing peace about it, looking at the options as doors that God has provided for you to enter. And then if you were right, it'll turn out right. That is, if that feeling that you had was really the peace of God, then your decision will show that because it will turn out well. And if that opportunity you took was really an open door from God, it'll put you in a good place you will know that you're in the center of God's will. And I call this outcome-based decision-making. If the outcome is good, then the decision was good. But what if, after you make the decision, things go south? What if you choose a particular school to attend, perhaps you move away, spend a lot of money, and in your second semester you break your leg playing intramural soccer? Or the classes for your major aren't quite what you thought they were going to be. 
Well, now you're going to start to have doubts about whether you've really found God's will for college. And apply that to relationships. You finally decide to marry that guy because you had a good feeling about it and you had prayed about it. And besides, the circumstances under which you met were so unusual, it had to be a God thing. But early on in the marriage, you realize that married life and dating life are quite different. That feeling that you had, the buzz that you got when you saw your boyfriend or girlfriend has faded, and to your surprise, has faded rather quickly. And you're now seeing things about your spouse that didn't show up in dating. And now you're wondering whether you're in God's will or not. You find yourself thinking about the other possibilities that you passed up and whether you've made a huge mistake. The underlying and false premise of all of this is that you're in God's will if things are going well. So when things don't go well, you're lost. But what if God's will is that you go through difficulty? What if there are times when God's will is best achieved in the midst of trial, in the midst of circumstances that are not to your liking? You see, if God's will, if God's purpose for us is our happiness, then of course when things are bad, then it's not God's will. But if God's will is not our happiness, but instead is something larger, something bigger, something that transcends our circumstances, And if it's something that can be achieved in any and every circumstance, good or bad, then that radically reorients your view. If that's the case, and we're going to see that it is, then instead of feeling-based decision-making or opportunity-based or outcome-based decision-making, we make our decisions another way. Now, today we're going to continue our series in the book of Philippians. We're going to see an example of a man whose good decisions resulted in bad circumstances. But they were bad circumstances that God used for his good purpose. So let's ask God to help us as we consider this important matter. Father, thank you again for gathering us. We thank you for condescending to meet with us. We thank you, Lord, that you are here with your people in a special way when your people are gathered before you in worship. So help us, Lord, to give it the solemnity that it requires. Help us to see it for the sacred time that it is. Help us as we then open your word to not be distracted with other thoughts, but to focus our attention on what you are telling us in your word. Open our hearts, we ask you to be moved and changed by your truth. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, the book of Philippians is one of those letters that Larry mentioned earlier, and it was one of the many written by Paul, written to Christians in a city called Philippi, where about 10 years earlier, Paul had founded the church in that city. But as he writes this letter, Paul is now in prison in Rome. And his friends in Philippi have heard about his situation and their concern for him. So as part of his letter, he reports to them on how he's doing under these circumstances. Verse 12 of chapter 1. 
Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now, every week we insert in your program an outline of the message, and we have that today. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take that out so that you can follow along. You'll see there that we have two major points, but I anticipate we'll only get to the first of those two today and we'll continue next week. But the first point from this passage is this, that adversity cannot stop the gospel. Adversity cannot stop the gospel. Verse 12 starts this way. I want you to know. And that's a phrase that was used by Paul in others of his letters to call attention to something that's important. And the wording in Philippians 1.12 is a variation of this common expression that he would use elsewhere. Here are some examples. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, I want you to realize... So this is something for you to take note of. It's important for the point that I'm going to make. I want you to know, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. In Romans chapter 1, just before the passage that Larry read earlier where he says, I'm not ashamed of, of the gospel. He says to the Roman Christians, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you. It's important that you know that I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not afraid to come to Rome. I've actually planned many times to come, but have been providentially hindered to that point. And then again, on the topic of the Lord's coming, his return, where some in the church at a city called Thessalonica had been misinformed and were were fearful that they had missed uh, even the resurrection. He says to them, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. So this phrase and its variations, I want you to know, we do not want you to be unaware. It invariably introduces an important assertion and it implies a misunderstanding has arisen over the matter at hand or that someone has inquired about it. And in this instance, The significance of Paul's immediate circumstances was this important matter. And he's saying, I want you to know about this. It's important that you know the reality of what's going on with me and my situation. So verse 12, I want you to know that what has happened to me, the phrase, what has happened to me? Well, what's happened to him? Well, he's in prison. He's in jail. He's under house arrest for preaching the gospel. But it's not just that he's been arrested and he's uh, in prison in the city of Rome, but rather the sequence of circumstances that resulted in that imprisonment started years earlier. But he tells them that the adverse circumstances he's in cannot stop what's really important, and that is the progress of the gospel. That's why I say in your outline, adversity cannot stop the gospel and, firstly, past difficulty cannot stop it. 
Now, in order to get a sense of what all has happened to Paul leading up to this imprisonment in Rome, we have to go back several years and what's recorded in the book of Acts about Paul's travels and his travails. So I ask you to bear with me as I give you a number of passages that we're going to put on the screen that will provide some background on how it is that Paul wound up in this house arrest in prison in Rome. Acts chapter 20 tells us that Paul spent three years in the city of Ephesus. And then Acts 20 records his words of farewell to the leaders of the church there. Here's what it says. I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. So he's leaving Ephesus. He's planning to go to Jerusalem and he's aware that indeed, there and in other cities, there may well be difficulty ahead for him. But later he was told very directly, you should not go to Jerusalem because trouble surely awaits you there. That was a it was a prediction that he would not be well received if indeed he goes to Jerusalem. And so Acts chapter 21, the next chapter says this, when we heard this, that is when we heard this prediction that there was going to be this trouble for him. We and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, the we there includes Paul's companion in the ministry, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts. So he's writing this. He's saying, I was among those who said, Paul, don't go and don't go and do this. But Paul's reply to them was this. I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And Luke goes on then to say, when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Now, part of the reason that it was anticipated that Paul would have trouble in Jerusalem is because Paul had become known for his gospel, his good news of how to have a relationship with God. And in that good news gospel, he said it was not necessary to keep the law of Moses in order to be accepted by God. Well, you can imagine that his Jewish kinsmen, Paul was Jewish, but his Jewish kinsmen did not take well, many of them, to that, and particularly in the city of, of Jerusalem. And so when he went to Jerusalem, here's what the Bible tells us. Some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple in Jerusalem. And sure enough, they did not take well to the sight of this guy who, in their minds, had been perverting truth. And so it goes on to say they stirred up the whole crowd and they seized him. And then the narrative goes on. And a few verses later, it says they dragged him from the temple while they were trying to kill him. Okay, notice. (laughs) Now, Paul says, I'm ready to die. Well, it looks like he's going to. They're ready to kill him. News reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. So the commander intervenes and he takes charge and he has Paul arrested. He doesn't have Paul arrested because Paul's done anything wrong, but because Paul was the center of attention. This commander just wanted to prevent a riot. And because we read later in the book of Acts, he thought that Paul was a guy who had three years earlier claimed to be a prophet who had gathered 4000 terrorists and threatened to take over Jerusalem. And so he has Paul arrested for both of those reasons. 
And he commanded that Paul be whipped and put in jail. But something important happens. Acts chapter 22. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? Ah, a Roman citizen. Roman citizens had some due process rights regarding trial and punishment. And so when Paul informs this soldier that he's a Roman citizen, here's what the Bible says. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. So now the commander wants to get this resolved. And so he gives Paul an opportunity to talk to these uh, these Jewish leaders. He's given an opportunity to address them, but here's what happens in Acts 23. The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. He intervenes to save Paul's life. Paul indeed is going to be killed by these Jewish leaders, and so he intervenes. Now, Paul, with all of this, he has said, I'm willing to go to Jerusalem. I'm willing to die in Jerusalem. But he's undoubtedly wondered whether he's really indeed going to be able to carry out his intended itinerary, which included a visit to Rome. He's promised that he's going to preach the gospel in Rome. And so the very next verse says this. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Well, okay. I'm going to Rome after all. I was planning on going to Rome. God says, I'm not going to be, Jesus tells me, I'm not going to be killed here in Jerusalem and I'm going to get to Rome. But it took a long while for that to come about. Because the narrative goes on to say the Jewish leaders plotted to kill Paul. Acts 23 tells us that Paul's nephew heard about that plot. He informed Paul and the commander. And the commander had Paul whisked away at night to the Roman provincial capital of Caesarea to be under the guardianship of the governor there. And Paul spent two full years in Caesarea under arrest. All right, so you're following? He was in Ephesus. On one of his many journeys for the gospel, as he leaves Ephesus, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem. He's warned, don't go to Jerusalem. He goes anyway. All of this tumult occurs as he is there. He's then brought for his own safety away from Jerusalem, but also for the political protection of the commander. If Paul gets killed in Jerusalem as a Roman citizen, he's going to have to answer for that. And so he has him moved to Caesarea. But Paul is there in Caesarea for for two full years. He's meeting with and making his case to two succeeding governors in Caesarea. And during that two years, he defended himself when the Jewish leaders were summoned to come from Jerusalem to make their accusations again. And Paul's response to their charges is actually what got him to Rome after all. Paul said this when these Jewish leaders arrived in Caesarea, brought again to make their accusations. 
The commander says, are you willing to follow what they say? And Paul says this. I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews. He goes on. The charges brought against me by these Jews are not true. So no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Well, that's one way to get to Rome. He makes an appeal to Caesar, which he has the right to do. And his appeal to Caesar in Rome was immediately granted. So it was decided after two years that he would be taken to Rome. Now, as I've told you, he already planned to go. But this is not actually the ticket he, he purchased. And interestingly, a few days later, a few days after this request, and it's going to be granted and is in process, a few days later, before he was led from Caesarea to Rome, a still higher Roman official, King Agrippa. Agrippa was the grandson of Herod the Great. Agrippa and his wife Bernice visited Caesarea, and the governor told them Paul's story. And the Bible tells us that Agrippa asked to meet with Paul. They met... And Paul gave the gospel to Agrippa and his wife and all who were in their entourage. And at the conclusion of his presentation, Paul said this. I pray to God that not only you, Agrippa, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am. That is, a Christian. Well, then the meeting was dismissed, and Agrippa is leaving, and he's talking to the governor. But the Bible says this, Agrippa said to the governor, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. <laughs> All right. So Paul appeals to Caesar. Now he's going to go to Rome, but the truth is he could have gone to Rome as a free man. Had he not asserted this right that he had. Now think about decision-making in the will of God. And as we look at what happens with Paul after all of this series of events, he could be looking back and he could second-guess himself. We're going to see probably next week that there were those uh, in Rome who were second-guessing, who were second-guessing Paul. But it was not that Agrippa could not release Paul on his own authority. He could have, but it would have not been, would not have been feasible politically for him to do that. And so he's appealed to Caesar, and now he's going to go to Rome under arrest. And even then, Paul's sufferings are not over. Because he has to get from Caesarea now to Rome. And there came the prolonged trial of a storm at sea that you read about in Acts chapter 27. In that storm, Paul's life hung by a thread. Both because of the elements, but also because of the incompetence of those who were leading the ship, directing the ship. Eventually, when Paul did reach Rome, it was far from a happy entry and arrival, the one that no doubt he envisioned that he would have when he first planned to go there. Instead, he comes to Rome in the company of other prisoners. He's bound by a chain, and he's destined to drag out at least two more years under arrest, awaiting the uncertain decision of an earthly king. And nevertheless, he's still in prison, still chained, Still unheard, still uncertain. He looks back and he says in verse 12 of Philippians 1. What happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. 
Now you read that line in Philippians 1.12, what happened to me? <laughs> and he doesn't go into detail in Philippians about everything that I just said to you. But that's the stuff that happened to him. And you know why he doesn't go into detail? Because he doesn't want them worrying about him. Because Paul is not the most important issue. And Paul's happiness is not the most important issue. The most important issue is the gospel. And so I want you to know that what has happened to me, which includes a boatload of stuff, (laughs) but I want you to know that it's actually served to advance the gospel. We've seen he's already been able to give the gospel to Roman officials and others in this entire ordeal, even before he arrived at Rome. We're going to see in a bit that he's still able to give the gospel in this present situation. So in verse 12, when he says, I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. That word advance means, or progress, it means moving ahead against obstacles. The verb form of the word that's translated advance was used of an explorer, an army advance team, hacking a path through dense trees and underbrush as they're moving ahead slowly and with considerable effort. And resistance is inherent in that sort of progress. And nobody knew better than Paul how inevitable the resistance of Satan and the world is to the advance of the gospel. But the gospel has still moved forward. John MacArthur recounts the experience of 17th century Baptist preacher John Bunyan, whose preaching was so popular and so powerful And yet it was so unacceptable to the leaders of the church in England that he was jailed in order to be silenced. But refusing to be silent, he began to preach in the jail courtyard. He not only had a large audience of prisoners, but also hundreds of the citizens of Bedford and the surrounding area would come to the prison daily and stand outside to hear Bunyan expound scripture. He was silenced verbally by being placed deep inside the jail and he was forbidden to preach at all. And yet in that silence, he spoke loudest of all and to more people than he would have imagined. It was during that time that he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, the great Christian classic that's ministered the gospel to tens of millions throughout the world. For several centuries, that book was the most widely read and translated in the world after the Bible. Bunyan's opponents were able to stop his preaching for a few years, but they were not able to stop his ministry. Instead, they provided opportunity for it to be extended from deep within a jail in the small town of Bedford, England, to the ends of the earth. Paul could say to his captors what Joseph said to his brothers after they sold him into slavery. It was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. And then a few chapters later, Joseph concludes famously by saying, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. J. Alec Macher says this about how Paul saw these experiences and what what they can teach us. In each and every circumstance, he says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion 
At the day of Jesus Christ, verse 6 of chapter 1, God rules. The pressures of life are the hands of the potter who is also our father. The fires of life are those of the refiner. He does not abandon the perfecting process to others, nor is he ever in his sovereign greatness knocked off course by the malpractice of evil men or by the weakness of good men. What God has said, he will absolutely bring about. And every circumstance in your life, the good and the bad, contribute to that purpose. Every last one. So the Bible says God is not human, that he should lie. He's not a human being, that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act as he promised and not fulfill? So friends, we need to be reminded, we need to understand, as I've told you before, everybody works for God. And everything works into God's plan. We need to remember this in the circumstances of our lives. We need to remember this on Tuesday for this election. Yikes. Everybody works for God. We're going to go to the polls. And you've got one candidate who is under active FBI investigation. You have another candidate who just about every time he speaks, I have a flashback to the cafeteria lunchroom in fourth grade. And the way we would argue with each other and call each other names. And he's a man who I would not want my daughters to be alone with for five minutes. And yet we've already had a man president who fits that category. And he's the husband of her. So you could easily despair. But friends, I tell you despair and I tell myself despair not. Because none of this moves God at all. None of this changes God's direction at all. As a matter of fact, it all fits in in his inscrutable mystery of his will and working it out in his sovereign way. God will use this as he uses all other things. So on November 9, I'm resolved to rejoice in the Lord. And I encourage you to do the same. Adversity cannot stop the gospel. Past difficulty cannot stop it. And I say in your outline, present difficulty cannot stop it. Verse 13 says, as a result. And then we'll look at the result. But as a result, that is, Due to all that has happened and now is happening, with me, Paul, under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard and awaiting my fate when Caesar makes his decision, as a result of all of this, it's all good. Because it has only served to accomplish God's purpose. Verse 13 says, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. So rather than focusing on the bleakness of the situation, Paul reminded himself and now reminds 
these Christians in Philippi that when he went to Rome, the gospel went to Rome. Or to put it another way, as he said in another letter in your New Testament. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But notice this, but God's word is not chained. He was chained, but he was not bound by the circumstances. The gospel was not chained. In the midst of his circumstances, in fact, because of those chains, he had tremendous opportunity to accomplish the work of God. So, friends, when we learn to see the true nature of our circumstances, when we stop looking at the underside of that tapestry that God's weaving in our lives, and instead look at it from God's perspective, from the top, and we see what He is weaving, then we can still have joy in the midst of difficulty because God is at work. His will is being done. Now, verse 13 says, because of all this, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard. This palace guard was known as the Praetorian Guard. It was a body of 9,000 men strong. They were hand-picked soldiers attached to the entourage of Caesar. They were the elite of the Roman army. They received double pay and privileges. It was one of these men that was chained to Paul 24 hours a day. The shift changed every six hours. So four different guys every day. Now, if none of those served that same duty twice, during Paul's imprisonment, he would have come in contact with 3,000 of Caesar's Praetorian Guard. Now, you think about what that would have been like. These are battle-hardened soldiers. They're immoral. They're rude. They're fearsome. So one preacher said, we might respond by saying, poor Paul. He's got no privacy. He's chained to these ungodly men day in and day out. But don't think poor Paul. Think poor soldiers. They're chained to the world's greatest missionary and they can't get away. And day in and day out, they heard his prayers. They heard his sermons because he had freedom within the city. They had to go where he went. They listened and found that this was a man of gentleness and courage and patience. They had to listen as he shared the gospel and discipled converts. One even listened while Paul dictated this very letter of Philippians. Soon these men were convinced that they were guarding no common criminal. He was a man who was unique, one who was chained for Christ, for the gospel of Christ, and they came to understand the real issue. The passage tells us that his situation was made known to the whole palace guard and to everyone else. It's as if he's saying, I became the talk of the town, and so Christ became the talk of the town. You know, when you're in a hospital room, or you're dealing with a death, or you're going to regular dialysis treatments, it brings you in contact with people who need to see the difference that Jesus makes. They too have these difficulties. That's why they're there. But they can't and don't have joy in those circumstances. We can have joy in ours because we serve God 
As we serve God by reaching others, we are also teaching believers. So in the midst of all these difficulties, God uses every last one of them for the advance, the progress of the gospel, even in the midst of the resistance. For us to reach unbelievers, but also to teach believers. Verse 14. Because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now, according to verse 28, it appears that the believers in Rome had been frightened into silence. They were frightened into cowardice by the opposition they faced in the capital city of Rome. And then here comes Paul. And this book is written while Paul is awaiting his verdict. And so all the believers in Rome had for two years seen him under fire. News of his courage spread. Soon this man's fire ignited a blaze in the souls of those at Rome. They too stood with boldness to proclaim the name of Jesus. And notice it says they proclaimed the gospel all the more. It implies that the reason for the fear had not disappeared. If anything, it was greater because of the attention that Paul had brought upon the gospel. And yet they stood and they preached. Before long, the situation in Rome would break out into out-and-out persecution under Nero. Now notice that it was not just some who did this, but most. It was not just the professional preachers, not even mostly professional preachers, but ordinary, everyday believers. So what would happen today if ordinary, regular believers had the wisdom to see all of their circumstances as opportunities for the gospel and had the courage to proclaim it. Be here tonight at 4.30 for a servant seminar. One of the objectives for the next 10 years is going to involve that very kind of thing for us. So ask yourself, as I ask myself, who's encouraged by your life? Because we're handling ordinary and extraordinary circumstances with joy and courage. And we can have this joy in our circumstances when we're willing to spend and be spent for a cause that is greater than us. I want to conclude. As you've seen how God has weaved his will through the life of Paul and brought him to this point of house arrest and the gospel is going forward. Despite and really because of all of these circumstances that God is using. I want you to remember that God has done this time and time again in the lives of his people. And this sovereign control of the intentions of evil people is seen most profoundly in the life of God the Son, come as man, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he walked the earth. And I'd like to conclude by reminding you that God accomplished his supreme act of using men's and Satan's evil schemes most profoundly in the work of The redemption of Jesus Christ. By his death and resurrection, Christ conquered sin and death. He defeated Satan. And he provided redemption for all in every age who will turn to him in saving faith. But he accomplished all of this in the midst of evil intentions. Here's what the Bible says. Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And wicked men put him to death by nailing him on the cross. Now notice, these wicked men did this. But God's behind it all. God's accomplishing his work in it all. And it says, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it is impossible for death to keep its hold on him. 
Elsewhere in the book of Acts, two chapters later, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to conspire against your holy servant Jesus. But the next verse says this, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So friends, there ain't no accidents in your life. None. And Jesus' death was not an accident. It was the deliberate act of a sovereign and yet loving God to accomplish our redemption. He offers that to you. And before we pray, we're going to have an invitation to offer to you to receive Jesus Christ, the one who died for your sin, the one who lived a perfect life, and both of those are applied to you when you bow your heart before God and acknowledge that you are a sinner, recognize that Christ died for your sin after living that perfect life, repent of your sin, that is, you give your life to Him, I'm going to go your way, not my way, and you receive Jesus Christ into your life. So we're going to bow. And when we do, two groups of people in this room, as in every room, The people who have a relationship with Jesus and the people who need a relationship with Jesus. Those of you who have a relationship with Jesus, thank him for your circumstances. And thank him for reminding you to look at those circumstances through a new set of lenses. And those of you that do not have a relationship with Jesus, we call you to bow your heart before him by praying a prayer like the one you see on the screen in your own words to God. Let's bow together. Father, thank you for the life of your servant and the model that it is, not only for these first century Christians in Rome and in Philippi, but now memorialized for us in the pages of Scripture so that we can see the difference that the Holy Spirit makes in the life of one who knows you. The radically changed perspective that we have so that now in all of our circumstances, We don't see ourselves as out of God's will because it's not going well. We see your will moving forward even when it's not going well. And even through the things that are not making it well. So I pray for my brothers and sisters here that they will be reminded of that in the midst of all that you have sovereignly assigned to them. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would move on the hearts of some who came into this room without knowing that peace, without knowing that perspective, without access to that joy. I pray you would draw them to yourself. Move on their hearts so that they see who they are and you for who you truly are. That you will save them, that you will rescue them, that you will deliver them. And that they will will become like us, seeking to bring glory and praise to you with their lives and lips. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, just before we stand and are dismissed with our closing song, Um, I want to introduce you to someone, and the someone is the arrival of a baby. Can you see there? That is little Eloise, and she is the adopted child of Matt and Erica Owen. Ah. Now, those of you who don't know who... (laughs) Well, thank you. Now, those of you who don't know who Matt and Erica are, obviously many of you do, most of you do, but 
Matt served as our associate pastor uh, here for nearly seven years. He's now the lead pastor at uh, Community Bible Church in Orange Park, Florida. And they have been for several years uh, seeking to adopt a child. In fact, several years ago, we had a fundraiser here for them for that very purpose. They've had more than one child uh, promised to them, and the, that has fallen through. But uh, this uh, child has been assigned to them, and they are at the hospital. And we're showing you this picture of Eloise because there's a one-minute movie we're going to show you right now of the Owen family at the hospital down in Florida. But little Eloise is being held, but you can't see her face in the movie. But uh, here is the Owen family. Hey there, CBC family. We're coming to you from Cocoa Beach, Florida, which is just about two and a half hours from where we live in Jacksonville. And we would like to introduce to you the newest member of our family. Back in 2013, uh, many of you started uh, on a journey with us towards adoption. And you have prayed for us and with us. You have waited with us for what seems like a really long time. And you've supported us in so many ways. And so we wanted you to be one of the first people to know of the good news that we want to share. We'd like to introduce to you Eloise Sunshine Owen. She was born on Wednesday, November 2nd at 6.45 in the morning. And she's just a little thing. She weighs 6 pounds and 10 ounces and was 18 and 3 quarters inches long. So we cannot wait. We're hoping to be able to bring her home on Monday. We wanted to thank you so much for all of your prayers and love and support these years. We miss you all. We love you. We miss you. We hope uh, you'll have a chance to meet her soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.